going to ask you to turn in your Bibles tonight to the 11th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. I have to tell you, it's a surprise to me we got through 10 chapters. I know we're doing it in fits and starts. Um, we've had been interrupted by a lot of things. Uh, sickness on my part, the number of times I've come to the end of the Lord's Day morning and just said to myself, I can't go on, I can't go on. And I've just had to say, I'm not going to be back for this evening. Part of that's a little bit of a concession to age. Part of it has been just the busyness of the ministry. It's not been at all not a desire to be with God's people. Um, but just in the providence of the Lord, we've had these obstacles in the way. Other things also have come in the way. and It's kind of like the stuff of life that just meets us. And, uh, and so our lives become kind of disordered. It becomes... Uh, where expected things don't uh, arrive at their expected conclusions. And it's very much like the book of Jeremiah in and of itself. It's a book that was written sort of in real time. I don't think Jeremiah had a great deal of time to just sit back and reflect. He was writing in the midst of a national crisis. He's the prophet to the exiled people. Uh, he's the prophet that was uh, present in Jerusalem when the city fell to the Babylonians. And uh, he was the prophet who saw the people taken away in shackles. He's the prophet who himself was unwillingly taken from Jerusalem. He would have gone to Babylon. His whole message was submit to the Babylonian rule. But he got taken away into uh, Egypt. And there's just massive dislocation. Massive sense of just the... Um, the the, the, the reality of life in, 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 in this world um, can make us very uh, disordered, very messy. And you know what? His book is messy as a result of that. There's a lot of um, difficulty commentators have sometimes understanding who's talking at this point and whose voice is being heard here. Is it the Lord? Is it Jeremiah? Is it the people? And um, sometimes you just don't know. Uh, but you would expect a, a book that did, I mean, you think of Isaiah, how orderly Isaiah is, how highly structured Isaiah is. But you really think that Isaiah, really from beginning to end, is dealing with a wide swath of Israel's history. It, it wasn't written in an in, 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 in evening's uh, just inspiration that uh, the Spirit came upon Isaiah and he wrote out chapters 1 to 39 in a couple of days. <laughs> that was probably decades while the, the, the work of Isaiah as a public prophet, uh, his writings were probably taken and by himself and even by others were probably honed and perhaps a bit edited and perhaps a little bit uh, rough edges shaved down a bit. His uh, poetic parts made a little bit more poetic. His prose parts made a little bit more strong and forceful. Uh, because, again, you're dealing with a great swath of time of the period of the... Assyrian ascendancy, uh, the period of the fall of the northern kingdom, all the way to the rise of Babylon at the end of chapter 39, when the Babylonian ambassadors come into the city, and Jeremiah tells, I'm sorry, Isaiah tells them, I'm sorry, Hezekiah, let me get my character straight. Hezekiah tells them exactly where all the treasures lie, would lay. So when they came back 150 years later, they knew exactly where to go. And of course, you come into chapter 40 and you're beginning with the reality of uh, the exile coming to an end. 
Wait a minute. Didn't even happen in chapter 39. It's about to come to an end. Uh, Comforting the people in the midst of the time of their warfare is coming down to an end. God's going to bring restoration. God's going to bring the nation back from captivity and have the rising of the one through whom that return came, at least that national return, who was Cyrus the Persian. So you're dealing with a wide swath of history. And again, it wasn't written in a moment. It was written over a course of time where the people that were involved in its composition had a lot of time to consider, a lot of time to think, a lot of time to put forth the writing in a way that we just look at it and say, man, this is good. This is easy reading. This is tremendously cogent and clear. And comp- Oh, man, I love Isaiah. Jeremiah, well, parts of it you love, right? <laughs> parts of it just shine out. But it really was written in the midst of that sort of conflict. And I rather think it's just the stuff of life that you see experience in, in, in Jeremiah, the reality of the troubles and the uh, difficulties of life. Well, we come to uh, a new chapter. We come to a new chapter, uh, really getting glad that we did the first 10 <laughs> chapters. And though there's, there's uh, you might say, a bit of a messiness about Jeremiah, something of a difficulty difficulty that you might have in trying to put it into an outline, let's say. Uh, it's not un, uh, undoable. You, you can find structure in it. And, and I believe you have certain things that really clearly out, uh, signal uh, a, new, a new section has begun. And in, in chapter 11 and verse 1, we have a formula that we have several times in the book that really, in my mind, tells us a new section is come, is, has come. And that's this, the words of verse 1 of chapter 11, which is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now, most of the time when Jeremiah introduces a word from God, he would say something like, uh, Yahweh declares. He would say, um, um, thus says the true and living God, or thus says the Lord. And thus says the Lord is usually the major way he says it. But here it's the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And this word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord is a formula that's used in chapter 7 and verse 1. You see the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And then he's told to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. That's the temple sermon. And there's a sense in which the book of Jeremiah can be outlined or configured or understood in terms of that opening commission in chapter 1. I don't want to get all messy about this this introduction to the section, but that opening chapter tells us that Jeremiah's work was a work of tearing down, of plucking up, um, there's one other expression, and destroying, and then building and planting. And so there's this massive work of dismantling that Jeremiah is set to do. There's like four verbs that's given to that work of dismantling. And Jeremiah is called to really dismantle all of the institutions of the nation that have been sullied by their apostasy, sullied by their sins, sullied by their um, unfaithfulness uh, to, to the Lord and their opting for the worship of the Baals. Again, those opening chapters, the first uh, uh, chapter 2 to chapter 6, is really about God's anger coming against an idolatrous and, a, and, and apostate people. Uh, the 
My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you'd offer themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that could hold no water. They've left the Lord. They've left the Lord their God, the God uh, in whom they, uh, there was at the beginning the joy of their espousals uh, before they entered into the land of, of Canaan. They were uh, tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they were holiness unto the Lord. It wasn't the first generation that came out of Egypt. That was a bunch of stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. It's really that second generation that's coming and the plains of Moab to enter into the land of promise, tested 40 years of learning that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. 40 years learning that they should worship the Lord their God and him only shall the, shall, uh, should they serve. Learning that they should not tempt the name of the Lord their God. All those tests that Jesus had 40 days in the wilderness, Israel experienced 40 years in the wilderness. And it was those lessons that were that which made them a people who were holiness to the Lord when they entered the land of promise. But no sooner did they enter the land of promise, the complaint in chapter 2 is that they forsook the Lord. They've left the joy of their espousals. They've left their uh, faithfulness as the bride of, of, of Yahweh. And they committed adultery, spiritual adultery. They committed abominations. They committed idolatry. They forsook him, the God of their mercies. And so, as a result of that, all of the institutions of the nation that were their distinctive privileges, some of those things that Paul speaks about, about the, again, the covenants and the adoption and the, the worship and the rest, these are the things that Jeremiah's words dismantle point after point after point after point. And in chapter 7 and verse 1, where he's told to go up to the temple and preach, this is really a section that begins with this whole idea that this whole notion they had that their confidence and their certainty of divine favor rested in the fact of the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Three times they repeat that. He repeats that. That was their confidence. That was their encouragement. They felt themselves I learned this word reading Superman comic books. I've told you this before. Superman comic books would use the word invulnerable. Superman was invulnerable. Shoot a gun at him, they'll bounce off his chest. They're not going to touch him. Israel thought nothing was going to touch them because they had the temple of the Lord. That was the guarantee that, that their presence in the land, their Favor from God was in perpetuity, regardless of anything else. And so they could go and they could commit every abomination under heaven. They could worship the Baals. They could commit all kinds of injustices and oppressions. They can commit all manner of unrighteousness acts, ignoring the widow and the orphan, um, allowing the, the, the peoples to be plundered and oppression and violence and murder and the rest. And they did all those things. They came up to the temple and they say, hey, we're here to worship. And Jeremiah says they've taken uh, the house of God and turned it into a den of thieves. And Jeremiah's mission was to tell them this is a misplaced confidence. This is a misplaced assurance because this temple will fall. This temple will fall. All of their false religious practices would come under divine judgment and they, their, their confidence in their temple, as long as they were 
apostate from God and idolatrous in their worship and bowing down unto every uh, green tree and committing every abominable act under heaven it was only going to ensure the fact that the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming and nothing is going to stop them. And so that first section, chapter 7 to chapter 10, really de- deals with the dismantling of, of the temple and their confidence in the temple. And in this section we're going to begin tonight, the perspective has to do with the covenant. I have here in the ESV a little title above. It says, The Broken Covenant. Well, yeah, that's true. They, they broke the covenant. And as a result, the curses of the covenant were going to come upon them. They had not kept God's word. They had, and what's emphasized here is the reading of the words of the covenant to the people. And the reading of the words of the covenant, uh, of the covenant to the people it proved unavailing. They were not going to repent. They were not going to turn. And hence, the judgment of God would come upon them. And it said, well, I shouldn't really tell you. Let me, let me just move on to the other, the other things. And again, you have another section after this. In chapter 17 in verse 1, um, I'm sorry, it's 18, 18 in verse 1, where it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, from the Lord, and another something is told him to do. Either after this formula, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, we either have Jeremiah being told to do something, or he's told to say something. That's usually what follows. You've got to do something, you have to say something. And the action or the words that he speaks really is the key to what this section is all about. And um, so this has to do with the perception that because we are God's people, we're on intimate terms with him. We're not them. We're not them, we're us. We're the people who are elect. We're the people who are chosen. We're the people who are on the in in this whole matter of divine favor. So if judgment's going to come upon anybody, it's the Babylonians, it's the other nations, not us. We're immune. And so Jeremiah has to deal with that whole perception that we're the in, we're the in crowd and everybody else is the out crowd. <laughs> and um, so he addresses that in this next section. And then just the destruction of the kingdom. That's the other thing that they trusted in. A perpetuity of uh, rulers that they would have who were sons of David. And as long as they had a Davidic king, everything was swell. Everything was okay. And with uh, chapter 21... Uh, you see that uh, the king is going to fall. Zedekiah will no longer continue to rule. Nebuchadnezzar will come and the people will be brought into captivity. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. That's the last one of these sections that goes to chapter 25. This whole section that is tearing down, the whole section that's plucking up, the whole section that's destroying, the dismantling of all the institutions of Israel, they trusted in, had confidence in, and they were going to come to an end because they were not invulnerable. They were vulnerable to the reality of divine wrath because of their sin, because of their apostasy, and because of their idolatry. And so the kingdom itself will fall, and the people and the king will be brought into Babylon. So that's something of the structure of the first section. The second section has to do with the building and the planning. I'm not going to get into that tonight. That's the second section of the book. From chapter 25 on, we have the book of consolation. You have matters pertaining to the promise of the new covenant. Uh, These are all things that speak of God beginning that whole work of building and planting. Yet a little bit of it in the earlier chapters, but not much. It's mostly really really, uh, negative. It's uh, God coming against all the, the... 
institutions they had their trust and confidence in. They, weren't, they didn't have their trust in the Lord. They had the, their trust in the things of the Lord, in the church of the Lord, in the sacraments of the Lord, in everything but the Lord himself. And um, this was really what led to the um, just the reality of what uh, uh, destruction God is, 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 is pleased to bring. Is that something of just how the section uh, falls out? And um, I'm not going to attempt to get all that deep into the text tonight. Um, I was thinking about this. Um, uh, Jeremiah had a lot of things happen that interrupted his train of thought, that interrupted his path of ministry, that um, interrupted many things. Uh, That's life. That's life. And um, I found myself a busy pastor, who part of my busy pastoral work is to go to conferences like I did Monday, Tuesday of this week. And I'm not just a busy pastor, I'm also a very busy grandpa and an uncle. And so we got called away this week to birthdays of grandchildren and of uh, nieces. And uh, that's part of the part of life as, as well. And so, you know, my concern is not to go deeply into the text itself. I'm going to kind of reserve that to next week when I have a full week, hopefully being able to uh, piece all the things together. Um, but just to give you something of a, an appetizer to lay out uh, the things that are to come, in this second section. It's actually the third major section of the book. The first section of the book, after chapter 2, which is the call of Jeremiah, you have the wrath of God upon the idolatrous and the apostate nation. And that's in chapters 2 to 6. And then you have the dismantling of the temple in chapter 7 to chapter 10. And now you have the dismantling of the covenant in chapter 11 to chapter um, 17. And the interesting thing in this section of the dismantling of the covenant is that it's the only one of these sections that begin with the formula, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, that both begins and ends in sections of prose. You notice in chapter uh, 10, that whole section ends with that poetic section. One of the rules I've tried to tell you before is that it's usually these prose sections that are uh, help to explain things a little bit more clearly. Uh, the poetry is poetry. It's filled with imagery. It's filled with powerful imagery many, many times. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not any less God's word, uh, but just to understand maybe what all of the poetry is pointing to, it's usually those, these prose sections that are really helpful uh, in the work of, of, of interpretation. Um, but it begins and ends with sections of prose, sermons. Uh, not poetic but prose sections. And um, I think that's important because I think it provides something of what we in this church have learned to call an inclusio. Something that brackets the thought. And if this section here is concerned with the matter of the covenant, one of the things that God's covenant had, particularly when there was to be a king in Israel, which Deuteronomy chapter 17 provides for a king, that when a king would come to reign in Israel, part of his work would be to continue to preserve the covenant law, to preserve the words of God, that the people would be obedient to the words of God. One of the things that the king was instructed to do in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17 
Turn to Deuteronomy 17. You have this law concerning Israel's kings. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, this is verse 14 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. That's really the problem, is they, they wanted a king like all the nations, and they weren't all that concerned with that king's character. But God says, you've got to be concerned about the king's character, and he's going to ensure it in the sense that he's going to tell the king what his duties are. And the king has to be concerned about these matters. And Israel should be concerned about having a king like this king that God says is the kind of king they should have over them. Indeed, you set a king, uh, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not be a king bent on military conquest necessarily, having his trust in chariots, having his trust in the number of his horses. And that's like the king of the nations. The king of the nations are concerned to, to build up their military might and their military power. But, but God's the one that's going to give Israel triumph over their enemies. God's the one that's going to protect them and preserve them. And, um, and um, you know, they... What does it say? A, 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 a thousand will flee at ten? Or, you know, ten go out in the field, a thousand will flee. Uh, because God is in their midst. God is going to give them triumph, and God is going to give them victory. So he shouldn't be trusting in his chariots and his horses and his military, um, his military might and his military power. Uh, and then it says, um, only he may... Uh, yeah, he might not uh, acquire this in verse 16, many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And that's in the area of having, um, having alliances with foreign nations, particularly having alliances with the Egyptians that you came out from among. And the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. And then, in addition, not unlike, unlike the nation's uh, kings, he may not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He's not to be a materialist. He's not to be a hedonist, having a large harem with multiple wives. He's not to be a militarist, having great armies and chariots and horses. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, in verse 18, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. He shall be a reader of the law of God. He shall have the law of God structure his understanding of his work as a king, structure his understanding of life and reality, it's the law that he shall read all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he might not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. Why am I reading this about the king? Well, first of all, because this section ends with the king. This action ends, first of all, with the disobedience of the... I'm sorry, begins with the disobedience of the people, but it ends with the disobedience of the king. You see in chapter 19... Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 17. Uh, thus says the Lord to me. And this is uh, verse 19 of chapter 17. Go and stand at the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter. 
God's going to address the kings. Don't just go up to the gate of the temple and preach there like you did in chapter 7. Now go to the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out and in, and in all, all the gates of Jerusalem. And say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah. And all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Jeremiah is to address not just the people, he's to address the king with his peculiar responsibilities. Thus says Yahweh, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath and do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Of course, the end is yet they did not listen. But you see, the king's responsible to see that the laws are kept, that he himself fears God, and that he leads the people in obedience to the law of God. And part of the covenant law that God gave to Israel was that the Sabbath would be the sign of that covenant. That would be the sign of that special relationship that Israel had with God. And their failure to keep God's Sabbath was a failure to be covenantly loyal, to be loyal to the God of the covenant. And the king was unfaithful in his duty as a covenant emissary to bring the people into conformity to the law of the covenant. That God's going to bring the judgment of the Babylonians in large part, not just because the people were disobedient, but the kings that led them, led them wrongly and falsely, that they failed to do what God had called them to do. And so it was the unfaithfulness of the people and their leaders to the covenant law, to the covenant commandments, to the covenant relationship that God had with the king and had with the nation. And the, key, and the failure to keep the Sabbath day was also something that structured the, the promise, you'll see it later on, where it's 70 years that are the duration of the exile. It was a multiple of seven. Because the people not only kept the week, failed to keep, keep the weekly Sabbath, they failed to keep the seven-year Sabbaths when the land would have its rest. The land would lie fallow. And they failed to keep the Jubilee. They failed to keep any of those holy days and holy seasons that the Lord himself had commanded. And as a result of that, God says you to go into exile for 70 years that the land might have its rest. The land might have its Sabbath. So it's God's covenant relationship with the people that is found in the law, that's found in the covenant law, the words of his commandment. It's found in the covenant sign of the Sabbath day and the Sabbath years that the people were to keep, the holy seasons that the people were to keep, that they failed to keep, that was going to determine this judgment that God brought upon the nation. But there's another thing about the king, I think, that enters into this whole picture. Jeremiah began his ministry in the reign of a king by the name of Josiah. Not only did he reign in the regime of Zedekiah and Jehoiakim and so many of these sons of uh, Josiah, uh, but he reigned in the uh, he uh, he had his ministry in the reign of Josiah himself. You see that in chapter one and verse one. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who in the land of Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. Came in the days of Josiah. Well, when you think of the 
King Josiah, just from what you remember from basic Bible knowledge, basic history of Israel, what's the major thing that you remember from Josiah? What's that? The finding of the law. The finding of the law in the temple. And the reading of the law by the king. And the reforms that the king brought in the land in the light of the finding of the law of God. And it's within this section of the covenant unfaithfulness of Israel that Jeremiah reminds us of what happened in the days of Josiah. When in the 15th chapter, I do believe, well, the verse I thought it was, I don't see it. Maybe some of you have it in your Bible memory system, which says, your words are found and I did eat them, and your words became unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I thought it was 1510, but it isn't. Fifteen, sixteen. Thank you. Fifteen, sixteen. Six verses short of it. Okay, there it is. It says, "Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh, God of hosts." And it's an interesting statement. This doesn't say your words came to me, like it does in the beginning of chapter 11 and in these other chapters where these sections begin with the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It's not saying there's a word that God came by way of some form of revelation or a dream or a vision, but it's your words were found, it says. And I believe the reference there is to what occurred in the days of Josiah when, when he sent Hilkiah to, to spruce up the temple and to do the repair work and the book of the law was found. God's words were found. The actual words of God, the written words of God, the words that the priest approved, and the, they wrote out and they put into the temple. And they gave a copy of it to the king. And the king had failed to read the law. And the people failed to be reading God's law and to regulating life in accordance with the law of God. And Josiah found the law of the Lord, or Hilkiah did, and brought it to Josiah. And what occurred? Revival. Well, not so much revival. It was reform. It was change. Now I think we could perhaps reason how quickly apostasy resumed after the death of Josiah. Maybe even Josiah himself being guilty of a little bit of apostasy of heart and the fact that he went up to war against the Egyptians in order to be allied with, um, uh, I guess, the, the, the Assyrians uh, in that conflict. He took the wrong... He took the wrong uh, part of it in terms of an alliance that he probably never should have made. And he went to war against uh, Pharaoh Nico and his life was taken in battle that he probably shouldn't have gone into because he didn't, I don't read at least that he uh, he um, sought the Lord's counsel with respect to that. So I think there, was, there might have been a little bit of a failure to um, come back to the Lord himself, but at least they were concerned to fear the Lord's words, fear the judgments that the Lord spoke of, and at least externally to bring about reform, bring about keeping of Sabbath days, bring about keeping of Passover once again, bring about some measure of covenant conformity. But it wasn't long-lasting because the kings that succeeded Josiah 
did not read the law of God, were not concerned to be regulated by the truth of God. They were, had their hearts prone to hear the false prophets and the lying prophets that are also spoken of in this section. And so, Josiah, so Jeremiah begins this section with the fact that it's the word of God in his covenant law, in the word that comes to us in Deuteronomy. And it's interesting how the book of Jeremiah is framed by the book of Deuteronomy in in so many different places. Deuteronomy is the only book of the Old Testament besides Jeremiah that speaks about the need of the circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah Deuteronomy is a book that speaks about what you to do with respect to uh, the putting away of a wife and God and putting away Israel is really talking in terms of that very law in Deuteronomy 24. So many of these correspondence that you see from the book of Jeremiah to the book of Deuteronomy. It seems that Jeremiah, when he says, your words were found and I hate them, he really devoured the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy comes to the surface again and again and again in the book. And so you see it here. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in chapter 11 and verse 1. Hear what? Hear the words of this covenant. It's the first time since chapter 3 that the term covenant is mentioned at all. And there it was mentioned in terms of a time of return from captivity and a time of revival when the people will no longer even be thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. Now at this point, that's all they think about. They just think about the externals of religion. They don't think about the reality of it. They don't think about the heart, the circumcision of the heart. Time's going to come when they're going to think about the sort of worship that's not being concerned about places and, and buildings and arcs and, and, and such. They're going to be concerned about the Lord. They're going to be concerned about the word of God and the ways of God and the love of God and the worship of God and the service of God. That's all bound up in the words of the covenant. Because God comes in covenant to Israel and says, I've taken you out of the house of bondage. I've taken you on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. I've taken you out of the fiery furnace and I've brought you to myself. There's also language from Deuteronomy that's found here in this passage about uh, being rescued from the fiery furnace. And um, it says here the words of this covenant. Speak to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Say to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. That's Deuteronomy 27. And the end of, the, of, of, of that chapter, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace. That's that language again, Deuteronomy 4, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God that I may confirm the oath I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. And I answered, so be it, Lord. But you see, this land grant that God gave to the nation when he evicted the other nations for their abominable practices, he said, you're to keep my laws. and don't, do, don't, don't go the ways of the Egyptians or the ways of the Canaanites. Don't replicate the things that they did or adopt their customs, lest the land also vomit you out. So this land grant was given not as a permanent um, a saleable reality. If the people were not obedient to the commandment of God and the word of God, they were not following the law of the covenant and the responsibilities that added gratitude to God for their redemption from Egyptian, Egyptian slavery that should have placed upon them, they're going to lose the land. They're going to lose the land. Jeremiah is told, to, or the Lord said to me, proclaim, verse 6, all the words these words to the cities of Judah 
And in the streets of Jerusalem, again, hear the words of this covenant. Again and again and again, the refrain is, hear the words of this covenant. Curse be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. It's the words of this covenant that they violated. It's the words of this covenant they simply refused to do. I solemnly warned your fathers, verse 7, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice, yet they did not obey. Or inclined their ear. It also speaks about uncircumcised ears as well as uncircumcised hearts. But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. You see, not doing the words of this covenant involved the curses of Deuteronomy 28. It was not only blessings God promised for covenant loyalty and covenant faithfulness and covenant allegiance and covenant obedience, but God promised curses that would come upon the nation. And the last and greatest of all the covenant curses is they would lose the land. They would be exiled. They would be scattered among the nations. Though there was hope of return from the nations, and once again that God would circumcise their hearts sometime in the future, yet the reality is this people, this disobedient people, this covenantally disobedient and unfaithful people, had broken the covenant of God. He's going to talk about that in chapter 31 using that very language, saying, A new covenant I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, which my covenant they broke. That was a broken covenant. God's going to make an unbreakable covenant in which he's going to put his law not on tables of stone, but upon the hearts of his people. Write them in our minds. Write them in our hearts. You can make a new covenant that is not going to involve a mixed multitude. But he says, all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The covenant people are not going to be a mass of people, regenerate and unregenerate. All will be regenerate. All will know the Lord. All will have his spirit. All will be redeemed, not just out of external slavery in a, in a, in a, to another nation but re- rescued from the slavery of, of their sins slavery to the world the flesh and the devil and then God's going to forgive them their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more those are the blessings of the new covenant that God says he will bring but this people now have broken the covenant the house of Israel, the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers they broke it how? Well, they turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. Everything was dependent upon their willingness to incline their ear, to hear God's words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the word Shema. They call it the Shema, the prayer that the Jews pray every day. Hear, hear. That's the great duty God laid upon that nation was to hear his words and hearing his words to incline their hearts but their hearts were disobedient their hearts were uncircumcised their hearts were rebellious and therefore says the Lord I'm bringing disaster upon them a disaster that they cannot escape though they cry to me I will not listen we're past the point of no return 
Then the cities of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will go and cry out to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of trouble, back to chapter 10, where their idols were a bunch of nothings. They couldn't walk, they couldn't do any good or evil. Your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah. Very similar complaint that Isaiah made. The, city, the, God, the idols are as many as, as your cities, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem, and the altars you set up to shame, altars that you make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for the people. We'll, we'll take up more of this covenant disobedience, God willing, next week. We'll take up more of this prayerlessness for the people of Israel. What I want to do this evening is just set out to you where we're going. Set out to you what the concerns are with this section. But it's another interesting thing before I conclude is how Jeremiah mingles this whole matter of the covenant unfaithfulness of the nation with his own lamentations. One of the chief aspects of Jeremiah that often makes it very relatable to a lot of people is that Jeremiah offers his complaints before God, very much like in the book of the Psalms. And there's a number of sections of what are called his um, laments, and, and sometimes today they're called confessions. It's interesting that the theologians have come up with this notion of Jeremiah's confessions, because he doesn't confess sin in any of these so-called confessions, nor does he confess faith in any of these so-called confessions. The only reason I can think why they might even be called confessions is we have that, that classic book called Augustine's Confessions. And in Augustine's Confessions, it's more like a, a journal. <laughs> it's more like just an expression of his experiences and his frustrations and his afflictions and his troubles and his sense of God's nearness and presence and goodness and love, but also the sense sometimes of God's distance and you know all of the rest. And so there is that relatability. There is that discourse between Jeremiah and God that is just uh, it's really interesting it's, it's quite phenomenal um, in the book and, and this is a section in which those lamentations abound there's five of these lamentation sections in the book of Jeremiah and three of them are found in this section from 11 to 17 11, 18 to 12, 6 in fact right after this whole beginning section about the covenant of unfaithfulness of the nation um, Jeremiah begins with his complaint. He begins with his lament in the presence of God. Chapter 15, 10 to 21, uh, 17, 14 to 18. And then there's also a section in 14, 11 to 16 that might be defined in terms of lamentations. Um, but you have an abundance of that. And the, the, and the, the, uh, the uh, others really soon follow in 18, 18 to 23, and 20, 17 to 18. Um, and so I think it's, so it might be important to say something just in terms of introduction to this whole section uh, about their presence in the book, of laments in the book. Um, what, do we, what, do we, what do we make of it that Jeremiah gets all, all personal? <laughs> that Jeremiah gets all effusive in his, whatever his prayer closet was like, whatever he was saying before God, he's now putting it in a book. Is this a personal journal that we're reading? <coughs> well, it certainly does speak to the reality of his experience, but it's intended to do more than just to convey 
something of Jeremiah's inner life, something of his frustration, something of his complaints before God. I don't think they were likely to have been spoken in like the prose sermons were. I mean, he went into the streets, he went into the gates, he went into the temple, and he spoke these words of prose sermons that we find in the book. I don't know that he brought into the presence of God these laments that are these poetic sections in which he expresses uh, the inner workings of his heart and his response and his questions and his, his complaints. I don't think he was looking to take his heart and put it out for all to see, especially for the disobedient and the rebellious and the covenant breakers. I think more likely they were intended to be read and intended to be treasured by the godly remnant who had experienced exile along with the disobedient. There were godly people in Judah who believed Jeremiah's words. And that exile did not come for their sake. It came for the sake of the rebellious. It came for the sake of those who had no right to be seen as heirs of of God's promises. But you see, those exiles could see Jeremiah and see in Jeremiah someone in whose person was writ large their own experience, their own sufferings. Jeremiah suffered at the hands of his own townspeople. The people of Anathoth hated him. They They sought his life. He was made the object of the anger of kings. He was put into a pit. His feet stuck in the mud. It's interesting that language of being stuck in the mud is used of Jeremiah, but it's also used of Zedekiah, or one of the other kings, Jehoiakim. Both of those people were stuck in the mud, but in different ways. In different ways. (laughs) Is the king that was stuck in the mud of his own wickedness and his own rebellion and he couldn't get out of. uh, But uh, Jeremiah also was stuck in the literal mud of a pit that he couldn't get out of. Uh, but he was made the, the victim of, uh, of uh, these rebellious kings. He was a man who was filled with troubles and the languages of these laments are the language very apt and very fitting for a people in exile just wondering what in the world's gone on. And you see, part of Jeremiah's ministry was not only to come to this rebellious nation and warn them of the judgment that was to come. He had a pastoral duty to the exiles. He writes letters to the people in exile, telling them what they're to do in exile. He's preparing them for the fact that this exile is coming. And they are able to read in his own language of lament the reality that there's hardships and difficulties and troubles and afflictions and uncertainties that do exist in the world. And sometimes we wonder, where's the Lord in all this? Sometimes we want to curse the very day that we was we were born. Sometimes we feel something of the of the real trauma that troubles and exile and warfare and all the rest bring and so we need language like that because people in trauma need language like this people need to know how, how do you express your own sense of bewilderment and confusion and, and dissonance 
that so much of life just sends your way? Aren't you glad you have the 88th Psalm to run to? Aren't you glad you have Psalm 77? Many of those Psalms have great hope in them, but they also have the language that's fitting the reality of life in a fallen world. I'm thankful for Jeremiah's ministry to the exiles. I'm thankful for the fact that God inspired him to open his heart and, and, and bear his pain and address the issues of the conflicts and troubles and sometimes the sense of insanity that exists in a fallen world. We have language in the Bible that fits those very situations of life. So we have good stuff coming up in the book of Jeremiah. In the midst of all the messiness, (laughs) there's good stuff that I trust God will use for our benefit and profit and our encouragement as we... uh, continue to work through uh, these sections. So take that this evening as a little bit of an appetizer of things to come, a little bit of an overview of the book itself and of where we've been and, and where we hope to go. So I trust it's been some, some measure of, of help. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for this opportunity to open your word and to glean from its contents those treasures that we we need to to see and behold and have our faith encouraged in and we're thankful for Jeremiah we're thankful that even in the midst of so much of the dismal troubles that he experienced and trauma that the nation experienced and the difficult expressions that we need to work through there's just much that's relevant because it's dealing with reality it's dealing with life in a fallen world and we're thankful that you're not a God who's remote from those situations but that you meet us within those situations as our as our helper as the one who helps us to see and understand uh, all the troubles of this world that they're not unending they will end that there will be the the triumph of the redeemed there will be the 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 rest of the of the eternal Sabbath that will come even in the midst of all of uh, life's afflictions and troubles. We're thankful that there will be rest at the coming of Jesus. We'll enter into that state of being in which every tear will be wiped away, which there will be no longer weeping and no longer death and no longer um, war and, and, and danger and fear that there will be the troubles of this world coming to an end and the blessings of the redeemed in that place where your people will know unending joy. And Lord, for all these realities, all these mercies that you have given us in your word, we are thankful. We're thankful for every part of scripture that has its place to help us understand Uh, how we are to order our ways and order our thoughts in all of life's circumstances. We're thankful for this day that you've given us to consider the scriptures. We pray that your blessing would be with us as we depart from one another, as we go to the work of the coming week, that we would be prepared to serve you and honor you, to bless you, to praise you, to be your, your people who will worship you and serve you in whatever you give us to do. We're thankful, Lord, again for your presence and your love. We're thankful for your grace and your kindness. We're thankful for your people. We're thankful for the Sabbath day that we can come aside from all of the 
troubles of this life and give ourselves to you in thought and reflection and meditation upon your word and we pray that all the the holy activities of this day will be uh, blessed of you to our enrichment to our spiritual edification to our uh, sake to our growth in grace and in the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ so we look to you to hear our prayers and to grant us the desires of our hearts as we come before your presence in jesus name amen